Now, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn again to the text we were looking at last night. That's in 1 Samuel and chapter 7. Page 424 in your church Bible. And at verse 2. So it was that the ark remained in Kirith Yarm a long time. It was there 20 years. And, in other words, after 20 years, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So again, returning to these words at the end of the verse, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, we began, of course, looking at this lamentation last night. And we saw that the real reason behind it was connected, of course, with the Lord's absence. The removal of the Ark of the Covenant from the people of God was a sign that God himself had left them and that they had grieved his presence away. There is a presence of the Lord that always remains with his people, but there is also a presence that leaves. And we too, even if we are true Christians, we can grieve the Holy Spirit so that the Lord takes his presence from us. But we saw last night how God returned to his people after showing his power to the world. And he came to the priestly city of Beth Shemesh. But the people in Beth Shemesh had lapsed into so much ignorance and irreverence, because as I said last night, you'll always find these two together, ignorance and irreverence. They had lapsed into both of these to such a great extent that they mishandled the Ark of God they didn't understand what the holiness of God really required of them, and God taught them a very severe lesson. And instead of properly humbling themselves in the light of that, they decided that it would be more comfortable to keep the presence of God at bay. And of course, as we read, and as I mentioned earlier, they sent the Ark of God to the house of a man whom they obviously esteemed and respected, a man called Abinadab, because even backslidden believers, like I said, can recognize those who are really close to the Lord. And so they left the ark with him and with his son on top of the hill. And so for 20 years, the ark of God was on the edge of the church. They didn't really want him back because they saw what God coming back cost. And uh, I said a lot about that last night, but not enough for you or for me. But God's presence costs. It costs a willingness to self-examine, to self-deny, and to really consecrate yourself for the Lord. But the reward of that is the presence of God and all that that brings. And I touched on some of it last night. So for 20 long years, the church is still going on 
without the presence of God in her midst. But during these 20 years, the Spirit of the Lord is nonetheless at work. We saw last night how God is busy when things are falling apart, beginning to build things up again. And he does it through the prayers of the remnant and through the birth and the growth and at last the ministry of the man called Samuel. And through these 20 years, the Lord doesn't come with a quake or with a fire or with a wind, but he does come with the still, small voice of the clear and faithful proclamation of the gospel as Samuel was preaching it up and down through the land, especially in the centers of Mizpah and Gilgal and Bethel. And at last we read that the people began to lament after the Lord. In other words, they became aware of what they once had. Their memories were kindled and became aware, of course, of what exactly they had lost as the real emptiness of their shallow religion started to come home to them. And, of course, they realized that they were responsible for grieving him away. Now, as Samuel goes around the Holy Land uh, preaching the word of God, he detects this new spirit of lamentation after the Lord. You know, it would be a wonderful thing. Uh, and the heart of every God-sent ambassador would really thrill to sense a people in the land of Scotland beginning to lament after the Lord. And instead of seeking uh, superficial joy and social fellowship, to be really seeking the presence and power of God in the sanctuary. And even prior to that, the presence and the power of God in their own individual lives. I mean, to see a real hunger and thirst for that uh, would gladden any real preacher's heart. And I'm sure Samuel was delighted to detect a lamentation after the Lord when the ark was still on the hill. God waiting in his holiness to be gracious, but to be gracious on terms of his holiness and with respect to his holiness and an understanding of it. And so in his proclamation, he directs the people as to what to do. Of course, a priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should have been teaching the people of God how to bring the ark back. But sad to say, it was the priestly city of Beth Shemesh that said, we can't handle this God. It's so often the case that those who are supposed to show the people of God how to live are the ones who are responsible for the people of God not living how they are supposed to live. And that was the case here. The priestly ministry was not helping the country. It was hindering. But Samuel was different. And he tells them what to do. And essentially what he says to them is this. He says, if you are serious about returning to the Lord, or if you are serious of the, about the Lord returning to you, which is two sides of the same coin. If you're serious about returning to the Lord or the Lord returning to you, he says, essentially, you've got to turn your lamentation into repentance. Lamenting after the Lord won't bring him back. But repenting 
will bring him back. Lamentation is a wonderful thing. And I suppose we could all lament things. We could all lament how things have been in the past, recalling better days, not just generally in the church, but amongst ourselves as a people, perhaps in our fellowships, primarily again in our own souls. Maybe you remember a better day when you were really alive before the Lord, full of faith and full of hope and full of love, and your mind was really focused on the Lord and on spiritual things. Your soul was fed with the finest of the wheat and you were content. It's all very well to remember that. But just remembering that won't bring the Lord back. You could sit and talk about it to people, people who can understand, people who could share and identify. That won't bring the Lord back either. No amount of lamentation will bring the Lord back to your heart or to your pews or to your communities. The only thing that will bring the Lord back is a return to himself. By repentance. If you do so, the Lord will return to you. So the first thing Samuel did was he told them to make sure that he, they put away the false gods which were amongst them. The foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, which were, of course, Philistine gods. He says, put them away. Now, it may seem astonishing to you and to me that such false gods could be in the midst of a, a believing people in the church of God. But I doubt very much if these gods were being worshipped explicitly or overtly. There were times of such darkness, no doubt, when that actually happened, but most of the time that's not the way it really happened. What tended to happen was that the church would take the forms and the usages of these religions, sometimes their images or their ways of worship, and they would import them into their own church. That was always the danger. It was the danger right from the start. You'll remember when Israel received the law on Mount Sinai before Moses had come down from the mountain they had lapsed into a false form of worship they wanted physical representations of God and they made a physical representation in the form of a golden calf now some people in their ignorance think that that was meant to be an idol it was not meant to be an idol it was meant to be an image of God and Aaron said, tomorrow is a feast dedicated to Jehovah, and they celebrated that feast, worshipping God, Jehovah, through the image of a golden calf. Now, of course, it was just a symbol of God, and what's wrong with a symbol of God? Well, what's wrong with it is that God had said, you shall have no symbols of me in your worship. You, you must have no graven images or any likeness of me of any kind when you worship. And God says that the worship that was offered to him through the golden calf terminates on the golden calf. It's a worship of the calf. Now I'm sure the Israelites would have said, well, we're not intending to worship the calf. We are tending to worship you through the calf. God says, it doesn't matter to me. I say that your worship is terminating on the calf, and that's what it's doing. And God has the last word. People think they can invent things like that. But God doesn't want our inventions in his worship. 
And here he's effectively saying, purge it out. It's so easy to come in. All you have to do is visit a Canaanite shop or something, and you, you may see something like a, an earring that is in the image of one of their gods, and you say, well, well, that's really quite nice, and you take it and you put it in your ear. Or you, you take an image of one of their gods, and you like the shape and the appearance of it, and you put it on your mantelpiece. Then you may perhaps start reading about such a god, and you may discover that some aspects of the worship of that god were actually quite interesting, the way that they did this, and so, well, let's do it that way. And little by little, the camel that got his ears in has now got his behind in, and he's entirely inside the tent of the church of God. It's as easy as that. It's as subtle as that. If it wasn't as easy and as subtle as that, it would be really hard to fall into it. But the devil seldom comes blowing bells and whistles. He slithers along like a serpent before, of course, he devours. Now, we used to think of this kind of entrance of paganism into the church as something that belonged to the church of Rome. And I suppose if I was standing here 50 or 60 years ago, I might well point out how that is the case. How the worship of all kinds of pagan religions have infiltrated that church. But there's no point going to the church of Rome when it's all around ourselves. There are churches now with nativity plays and little dolls of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they think it's okay. Christmas crackers, Easter eggs, and everything else introduced into the worship of God. And again, as I said last night, just because the judgment of God doesn't fall from heaven, we think God's okay with it. When all the time the Lord is saying what he said in Psalm 50, you thought I was altogether like yourselves because I kept silence. But I will bring your sins out in order and I will rank them before your eyes. We can think in our own individual lives that God is happy with what he isn't happy with at all. Just because he hasn't come in with a shattering chastisement. You thought because I was silent that I approved. No, God says, I will deal with it in my time and in my way. And of course, the tragic thing is, I mean, you can ask Israel here, um, is God with you? And they would say, oh yes, of course God's with us. But he wasn't. He wasn't. How many of us know the presence of God? Do we actually know what it's like for God to be present? Do we, like, do we know what it's like for God to be in a gathering? Do we care whether it's here or not? Ever since... Uh, my youngest days have been familiar with people in the most irreverent, informal setting, saying, we thank you that you're here today. Uh, you've promised to be here, and you're here. And there was no evidence that he was there. Would they know if he was there? The fact of the matter is that God was not there. And they were just going on as though he was until God woke them up. The problem can be much wider than that. Put away your false gods and your idols. Lots of things can be that. Paul, of course, reminds us that covetousness is idolatry. Anything that is in the place of God is idolatry. You put your idols away when you became a Christian, but how many of them have crept back? Little children, John said, 
keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because they're always trying to usurp the throne of your heart. And they can make a mess of your life for 20 years or more. A mess of your life. And you don't even notice it yourself until you begin to lament after the Lord. You think he's with you. And he's not. Now, put away these gods. And, he says, serve the true God. And not only does he say serve the true God, but he says prepare your hearts to serve the true God. That expression in the Hebrew, prepare your hearts, means set your hearts in order. Um, think about what you think about. Think about what you say. Think about what you do. Think about how you plan your life. Think about how you live your day. We're told that King Jotham prospered before the Lord because he set his heart in order before the Lord. He started to take his faith and his service of God seriously again. Seriously. It was the primary thing that mattered in his life, to put God first. And putting out the idols will just leave a vacuum. As well as putting out the idols, you put the Lord back. You set your heart in order. You go back to the word. You go back to prayer, private prayer. You go back to public prayer. You are in the prayer meeting. You are in the services of the sanctuary. You're not making excuses not to be in these places. These excuses are easy to make, but you cease making them. Why? Because you're intent on serving the Lord. And you're disciplining your heart and disciplining your life to serve the Lord like you did at first. Remember from whence you have fallen and do the first works, the primary works, the basic things. I often say to you that the basic things are the most important things in Christianity. The most important things are the basic things. And they're the things we need to check that we're doing again and again and again. Instead of looking for abstract, obscure things that might help to make us better, what will make us better is to do the basics right, to be near to God, to be at the throne of grace, to be in the fellowship of his people, to be speaking about the things of the Lord, to be loving the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what God wants. Put away the idols, the little foxes that have spoiled the vines, the little things that have come in between you and God. And of course, when he says serve him, as well as putting your heart in order to serve him, he of course means that we put it into action. Resolving something isn't good enough unless we carry it through. You all know that. I mean, the Lord Jesus himself told the parable of two sons. And the father said to one of them, go into the vineyard. And he says, I will. And he didn't go. The other one said, I won't. But he ended up going. Which of these did the will of the father, Jesus says. Of course, it was the one who said no first, but still went and did it. Because God is concerned with our actions, not with our resolutions. It would be easy to take a... To take comfort from the fact that we know there's a problem. We know there's a problem out there and we know there's a problem in here. We can be satisfied with that. But why should we be satisfied with that? 
when we need to do something about it. You know you need to pray good. Is that it? You know you should be regular in the prayer meetings very well. Are you? And so it goes on. Now, brethren, uh, I speak to a congregation where there is almost constant attendance on the part of everybody at the prayer meeting. For that, I give praise and thanks to God. But this may, from the Lord, be directed even to one soul here. I don't know your condition thoroughly. Neither do you know mine. That's just a fact. But the Lord, through Samuel, is telling us all to make sure that we are serving the Lord and putting away the idols. The resolve is not enough. To go back to what I illustrated last night, if, like the church in the Song of Solomon, we are, we are lying between sleeping and wakening on the bed, and the beloved puts his hand through the door, we are aware of that, but we do nothing. And then he deposits the bundle of myrrh at the door, and, and the church smells the fragrance. She could still say, oh, well, that's a lovely fragrance, and just leave it at that. But no, she gets up. She, she couldn't be bothered getting up when she was aware of the hand at the door. She couldn't be bothered. She said, I've washed my feet and I've put off my robe and I'm not going to get out of bed. But she smelt the mirror and she wasn't content with smelling it. She had to have the presence of her Lord and she went out and she sought him. Now that's what we've all got to do. That's how we've got to go to the Lord's Supper. Not as a routine or a ritual, it's just a date on a calendar. But we've got to go there hungry and thirsty for God, to meet with him at his table, to have fellowship with him. That's how we need to go to the table of the Lord. We all need maybe to turn our lamentation into repentance. Like David said in, in the words that are so familiar to us, I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are. But hastily thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. We often sing these words in connection with unconverted people turning to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But they are, first of all, applicable and directed towards the Lord's people. Exercising a repentant spirit and realizing that they're not where they were or where they should be. So I didn't stay or linger long like the slothful on their bed. But I got out of bed hastily, thy laws to keep myself I did prepare. Christian friend going to the table, put off the old man, put on the new man. Put away your idols and serve the Lord. Now I don't know, like I said, who among you needs this, or to what extent you need it, or me. But I know that on a national scale, the professing Christian church in Scotland hasn't even started to lament the Lord's absence. And it hasn't even started to lament the Lord's absence because it hasn't noticed that he's not in the building. Now, all this requires resolve. I read an old commentator who said that we must remember that 
In this world, he says, we are exposed to many influences which remove God from our thoughts, which uh, stimulate our weaknesses and give force to our temptations, lessening the power of our resistance and drawing us back to our old sins. For example, he says, one who has a tendency to drunkenness, make that drugs or covetousness or laziness even, one who has a tendency to drunkenness may have a sincere conviction that his acts of drunkenness displease God, and he may have a sincere desire never to be drunk again. But as well as that, he must prepare his heart against that sin by resolving to turn from what leads to drinking, and that gives strength to that temptation. Turn from that, from the thing that weakens his resistance and draws him into the vortex. And if that sounds just like a hard and difficult duty, well, I'm sure it is. But the reward, of course, is, as Samuel said to Israel, he says, God will deliver you. This Philistine culture will cease to triumph over you, and you will begin to assert yourself over the Philistines again. Always remember this as the spiritual slash cultural background in the old testament when the church is faithful the world is afraid and notices it when the church becomes unfaithful the worldly culture begins to assert itself over the church it recognizes the weakness of the church and it begins to prevail we have the shocking figure in samuel of the philistine oppression being so great that israel is not allowed to make any implements of metal they need a certificate to make an axe. The control of the Philistines is so great. Now, there are some people who are prepared to live like that. They would prefer to be in a peaceful bondage to the world rather than having the, the sheer difficulty that comes from taking on the world. They are at ease in Zion. In fact, I don't know if you remember that shocking incident when Samson goes, as God's deliverer, he goes uh, to hide in the cliff of uh, Etam in Israel, in Judah. The, the godly tribe, the messianic tribe, who should be leading the whole people. So he goes to hide, and we're told that 3,000 of the men of Judah come up to, to Samson and they say, you're bringing trouble on us. You're going in amongst the Philistines and you're bringing trouble on us. Do you not know, they said, that the Philistines are our masters? Are they not ashamed to be uttering these words? Are they not utterly ashamed? Yes, they are your masters. And here's the person who's trying to do something about it. And what do you do? You're binding his hands and handing him over to a thousand Philistines, who, by the way, are less in number than yourselves. Which, again, is a shocking thing. That's the weakness of the church of God. When the world seeps into all our institutions and takes them over, tells us when we can do this and when we can do that and the extent to which we can worship and the extent to which we can speak, what things we are allowed to say and what things we are not allowed to say. And there's this spirit of acceptance because they are our masters. Well, if they are, then why? Why? Are they our masters? That was the question. But Samuel says, you can be shot of them. 
you can be delivered from these Philistines by turning back to the Lord. Now once he's preached that for a while amongst the people, he detects a new spirit in the land. And it's a spirit of awakening. Because we read in verse 4 that after Samuel has preached these things, putting away the idols and serving the Lord, we read that the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Samuel recognizes that. He recognizes that the lamentation has turned into repentance. There's a change. So it's a wonderful thing when people begin to change like this. When the Lord's people begin to stir and when they begin to awaken and when they begin to recover their strength. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And Samuel recognizes that it's a time uh, for a national covenant. And he calls the people to gather at Mizpah, which is around eight miles north of Jerusalem. And he leads them in a, in a national repentance, which is not dissimilar really from the national covenant that was signed in our own country in 1638. It's marked, of course, by his own preaching and prophesying, but it's marked by their prayer too. The people start to pray, and they pray sincerely and earnestly. What are the signs of that? Well, in the first place, when they gathered, they fasted for a day. Fasting is always accompanied with prayer. I don't mean that prayer is always accompanied with fasting. I mean that fasting is always accompanied with prayer. Especially when there is a special need to search yourself, to examine yourself, and to humble yourself before God. And we need that. We, put it bluntly, we eat too much and fast too little. And in our prayers, there's little, perhaps, of the fast on all our parts. But it's a sign of their sincerity and their earnestness. Along with that, you'll notice that their prayers are confessional. In fact, all we have of them is this simple expression that we have sinned against the Lord. Yes, but that's all that David really said or that's all that's recorded of what David said when Nathan told him his sin to. I'm sure David said a lot more than that before God. Psalm 51 is a window into it. And I'm sure the people said a lot more than we have sinned before the Lord. But the point is that they meant it. They meant it. The pretense is gone. The hypocrisy. It's gone. The sincerity is there. We have sinned before the Lord. We are not. We are not what we should have been or what we were even. It's not as though God is putting an ideal before us that no one has ever attained to. It's just a sincere, earnest desire to keep his ways and to honor him and glorify him. Ought that to be beyond us as a people? Ought it to be beyond us? Not perfection, but faithfulness. People say you can't find a perfect Christian and you can't find a perfect church. I know, and everybody knows that, but you can find a faithful Christian and you can find a faithful church. And let's just ask ourselves that. Are we that? And if not, let's be that. Let's resolve to be that before the Lord. Sincere prayer, a confessional prayer, and a prayer full 
of desire. I think that's symbolized in the water that they took and poured out. Now, I'll be honest and say that I, I can't say for sure what this symbolizes. Um, some people suggest that, I mean, all that's recorded is that they simply took water at Mizpah and they poured it out on the ground before the Lord that day. It's in verse 6. Nothing else is said about it. And therefore it's difficult really to conclude exactly what it means. Some people say that pouring out the water is a symbol of the way that they poured out their hearts before the Lord. That would be fitting enough. Some say that it's a sign of, of the depth of their fasting that they would not even drink of that day. That may well be true too. Personally, I'm just going to suggest this to you. But I wonder if the symbolism is connected to what happened on the last day of the feast of the tabernacles, on the eighth day. Um, I'll come back to the number eight in a minute in connection with a burnt offering. But on the eighth day, they took water from the pool of Siloam and they poured it out on the ground. And that was a sign amongst the ancient people of God that the day would come when the Lord would pour his spirit down upon the dry, thirsty ground because... The thirsty ground requires with rain refreshed to be. And it, it's, uh, it was a symbol to the Jewish people of the, the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon his own people in their dryness and in their need and indeed on an unbelieving world. Christ was present, of course, that day uh, when they drew the water from the pool of Siloam and he poured it onto the ground. And that was the occasion on which the, he said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink and out of his belly will flow rivers of water in other words if you if you drink what i give you it'll flow from you and it'll irrigate others and you will be blessed and be a blessing to believer and to unbeliever i wonder if that's what was symbolized at mizpah along with the fasting and the confessing uh, a symbolic act that obviously Samuel authorized as a prophet, a symbolic act to convey the needed power of God coming into their lives as it had been before, before they lost the ark and were content to keep God at a distance. That was a good day in Israel at Mizpah. And one that stayed with them for many years. Now, you'll notice in your own life, church life, and in the Bible, that whenever a people move near to God, the devil moves near to them. It's an infallible rule. Whenever he starts to lament a situation, he doesn't sit on his hands. If he sees the tide going against him, he's up and doing it's, I, would, I would be careful in how I said it, but you can learn a lot from the devil in some ways. He's industrious. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is not sober, but he absolutely is vigilant in his own way. If his kingdom was as poor as we think it is, it wouldn't be functioning as effectively as it is. And the minute he detects, the minute he detects a movement Godward anywhere, he's in on it like a shot. He's probably even in 
And suppose you've even sat here and you felt that the Lord was speaking to yourself and calling you to repentance. He'll cut across it with some kind of suggestion or some kind of excuse. But you'll notice that the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah in verse 7 and were told that the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel right away. This is what the world does when it recognizes Christians stirring and um, drawing towards the Lord and their love awakening and their desire kindling. The world begins to arouse against the church. And the first thing the world will try to do is crush. Crush. See, the world will always make the mistake that just because it got, it got Samson to, to lose his hair, that the church is emasculated and that it will never have power again. And when Samson there, the, the great deliverer of God, is reduced to the case, to the to a state where he's grinding out corn for the Philistines. Which is again as shocking really. It's not just that individual Christians can fall into that position. But, but, but the church can become so captive. That all she does really is grind out corn for the Philistines. For their culture and for their economy. But they forget that Samson's hair can grow again. And that Samson's hair did grow again. And the Philistines will underestimate the church. She won't underestimate, the world won't underestimate the church when God isn't in her midst because she's a pushover. But when the Lord comes back into the hearts of his people, the world will underestimate her power and her strength. She absolutely will. As we saw last night when Jacob moved back close to the Lord, the fear of the Lord came upon the Canaanites. They knew, they recognized a church in power. Like the backslider can recognize a spirit-filled Christian. Even though they're not spirit-filled themselves. And the strange thing is that if you work out the chronology. The Philistines have just received a grievous blow at this point. The fact is that Samuel and Samson were both operating together. They were both Nazarites from the womb. And the deliverance that uh, Samson was accomplishing in the south was a deliverance that Samuel was just about to complete in the north. And it's just prior to this that Samson had brought the temple down. And of course, in bringing the temple down, he had given a serious blow to the Philistines. And many government officials and their most prominent people had been destroyed that day by the hand of God. And they were deeply concerned. And when they heard that these Christians were coming together on this mountain, consecrating themselves to God, they're, they're concerned. They're concerned. And they want to destroy it and to nip it in the bud. Now I want you to notice how they respond to this. The church responds, first of all, by prevailing power. Prayer, sorry. We're told in verse 7 that... When the Philistines heard, the lords of the Philistines, obviously new lords, went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid. And then they said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
Now, the fact that they're asking Samuel to pray is not to be understood as though they're not praying themselves. I'm conscious it's possible to take it that way, but to take it that way would be wrong. In fact, they may even feel that their own prayers are not worthy of being heard. And you know, that's a good sign too. I mentioned last night, when you have a sense of unworthiness in going to the Lord's table, that's part of your worthiness in being at the Lord's table. When you have a sense of the poverty and unworthiness of your own prayer, that's when it is most likely to be heard and received by God. Samuel, you pray, you pray. It's not as though they're not praying themselves but they feel they need to lay hold upon God. How different this was to 20, 20 years and seven months previously, when carelessly they took the ark of God into battle, treating it as though it was like a lucky charm, expecting God to work for them, even though they were backslidden and fallen away from God. How different this is. They, they are now so careful and so earnest. And instead of trying to meet God with ritualism and superstition, they're meeting him with real, heartfelt and earnest prayer. And that contrast is woven into the narrative. I mean, if you, if you read the narrative carefully, you'll discover that the Holy Spirit is drawing this contrast all the way through. Twenty years previously, they said, the ark will protect us protect us. Now they're saying, may the Lord deliver us. Twenty years ago, we read that Israel were struck down before the Philistines. Now we read that the Philistines were struck down before Israel. Twenty years ago, a child was born and the poor woman called him Ichabod because the glory of God had left with the ark. Here, a stone is erected called a stone of help because God was back with his people. Back with your soul if need be. Back with your soul. It's a different church. Serious. Earnest. Self-denying. God-glorifying. And prayerful. And with the prevailing prayer. You'll notice that there's a complete consecration of the people. Because Samuel takes a suckling lamb in verse 9. And offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Not a sin offering. But a burnt offering. There is a difference. A sin offering deals with sin simpliciter. That's its entire business. A burnt offering is more than that. The burnt offering was offered entire. Every part of the animal consumed. The Greek term for it is holocaust, which of course has passed into popular language because of the offering up, as it were. That's how the Jews see themselves as having been offered up mysteriously somehow in the events of the Second World War. But this is the original holocaust. It is the whole burnt offering. The burnt offering symbolizes dedication to God, absolute dedication to God. Now, it's in the Lamb that they offer themselves. It's through the Lamb that they offer themselves. Absolutely right. There's no burnt offering without a sin offering in that respect. Um, without the death of Christ, none of us can dedicate ourselves to God. Absolutely not. 
He is the burnt offering, making atonement for sin and offering himself up entirely. But then the duty comes on you and on me to do exactly the same. As Paul reminds the church in Rome, I beseech you, he says, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies. The body there is not in opposition to the soul or exclusive of the soul. In fact, it is inclusive of the soul. In other words, uh, Paul is telling them, don't just offer your soul, he says, offer your body too. Offer every part of you, he says, a living sacrifice to God which is holy and acceptable to God because he says that's your reasonable service. The Greek word is liturgia, uh, worship. To, to, to offer yourself entirely to God. Your hands, what do they do by day? Your feet, where do, where do you go? Where are you found? Where are you found? Your eyes, where do they range? Your ears, what are they listening to? We, we don't offer ourselves to God on the Lord's day alone, do we? Let, let me be entirely consecrated to thee. The word for lamb here is actually, it's expressed in our version here, a suckling lamb. We're told that it was on the eighth day, at least, that the lamb for a burnt offering had to be offered. Um, in Ezekiel's vision of the temple towards the close of his prophecy, there's a picture of the altar being dedicated. And on seven days there is a sin offering offered. On the eighth day there is a burnt offering. When sin is dealt with, there is consecration. Um, when our sins are covered, we yield ourselves to God. Eight. The number eight is always tied up with a burnt offering in the Bible. And the number eight is so pervasive in scripture, next to the number seven. It always means a new beginning, renewal, consecration. The numerical value of Jesus' name is 888. It's um, a fact that on the eighth day the child was circumcised, which symbolized itself renewal of heart before God. The new Christian Sabbath falls on the eighth day, the last great day of the feast, which has become the first day, the day of renewal and of new beginnings. Because on the first Sabbath, the new creation began by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. I could go on. Eight people in the ark passing through the old world and into the new. I could go on. Eight is renewal and new beginnings. And here the suckling lamb. This is the only time this particular word for a lamb is used in the Old Testament. Sorry, it's one of two. But it means just a, a suckling lamb. And here it, it had to be eight days, not on the seventh or on the sixth. It had to be eight days old. He takes it and he offers it as a new beginning. Here are a people. Thy people shall be willing in a day of thy power. In holy beauties from the womb of the morning you have your people your army on your side and here they are prevailing in prayer and completely consecrated for the Lord with a renewed zeal for the battle at first they were afraid when they saw the Philistines but once the burnt offering was offered the fear was gone a sight of Christ 
filling their eyes, filling their hearts and filling their lives and the fear of the Philistines went. And lo and behold, the fear of, the God, of God fell on the Philistines. The Lord, we're told enigmatically here, uh, cryptically, just thundered on the Philistines and they were afraid. It's hard to account for why the world sometimes becomes afraid of the people of God. It's hard to account for naturally. People know why spiritually. You can see it here in this island. The world is strong. Why? Because the church is weak. But let the church rise in her strength. Let her come back to God in faithfulness and earnestness. And the world will take note of that. And this seal... This zeal to fight the Lord's battle means that they are victorious. They're victorious. And it's no wonder that afterwards, when the battle is finished, this kind of church is concerned to give God the glory. And she does so by raising a stone. There are many times when the church of God raises stones. When she crossed the Jordan... Into the promised land of milk and honey, she raised a stone memorial. So that every time they looked at the stones, they would remember how God had brought them from death to life. When they were renewing the covenant in Joshua chapter 4 at Shechem, Joshua raised a stone. He told them God's terms for dwelling in their midst, which respected his holiness. And the people acknowledged that and they yielded themselves to God. And Samuel said, this stone, and he's speaking poetically, he says, this stone has heard God speak and this stone has heard you speak. And this stone, as long as it stands here, will remind you of what God said to you and of what you said to God. And here he calls the name of the stone, the stone of help, because he says, until now, God has helped. And he has. And that includes the dark bits and the sad bits and the difficult bits. God used these things to get rid, to get rid of useless ministers like Hophni and Phineas out of the church, who were sleeping with the woman at the tabernacle. Out, out. He got them out. And he took in Samuel. And Samuel trained the prophets of the Lord in Mizpah and in Bethel. And in Gilgal. And so God uses the dark times to awaken his people. The sense of affliction and difficulty and need. It's at last then that the people start to call upon the name of the Lord. Have you started doing that yourself? For our nation? For our people? For professing Christians? For the world? Have we started to pray in earnest and to fight the Lord's battle? Until now, God has helped us. In other words, we are a kept people. And here we are tonight, still looking forward to a communion season. We're still alive. And I don't mean by that that we're just living. I mean that we're alive to the Lord. In spite of the ups and the downs, the toings and the froings, we're here wanting to be fed. We want to meet with the Lord. We want to eat the bread, we want to drink the wine because we want the Lord to be close to us, indwelling us, even as we indwell him, desiring the Lord. And we believe that this God will remain our God until death and into eternity.
the God who has kept us till now will keep us still. I can't help but feel that the word, and I'm closing with this, that the word hitherto has a kind of forward look as well as a backward look. Now the backward look is really the obvious one and to some extent you could confine it to that. Here we are, he says, and God has helped us. But you can't but feel that there's a subtext to that too, that it's effectively saying, don't doubt that he will keep you in the future too. He has sustained you and blessed you and kept you. Kept alive the work of grace in your heart. Well, hitherto the Lord has helped you and help you he will. Now on the Lord's day, what we have effectively on our table is a memorial. Not of stone, but of bread and wine. And it is a memorial because we remember the Lord's death. But it's not a memorial of our devising. It is a memorial of the Lord's devising. He has commanded the bread and the wine to represent himself. And just like Joshua's stone, it speaks. And it reminds us of what he has done. And it reminds us of who we are and what we are committed to as well. There's no doubt that it's a covenantal meal. And in a covenantal meal, it runs two ways. It runs two ways. We hear God's voice effectively saying on the table, Hitherto I have helped you, and my presence shall go with you. Always, even to the end of the world. It says, Hitherto I have helped you, and it reminds us of what we said to God. Thy vows are upon me, O God. O Lord, I am thine, save thou me. I am thy servant, I am thine handmaid son. How often you have consecrated yourself to God at the Lord's table. Well, come back to the memorial, thankful that he has still kept you, and consecrate yourself again. Let us go to the holy hill of God, even where his dwellings be. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. We'll close our service singing in Psalm 119 and verse 57. Psalm 119 and verse 57. Though my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord, I have resolved, now that resolution is really important, and said that I would keep thy holy word. And he, he moves into action with my whole heart. I did entreat thy face and favor free, and therefore he pleads according to thy gracious word, be merciful to me. In other words, I'm moving towards you, please move towards me. I thought upon my former ways. And that's a reference really to his coldness. I did my life well try. Have I been what I should have been? And to thy testimonies pure my feet then turned. I notice he suddenly wants holiness of life. And he's not going to be dilly-dallying about it. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are. But hastily thy laws to keep. 
myself I did prepare. Uh, we'll sing verses 57 to 60. Four stanzas and we stand to sing them. the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.